Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. As you're turning to, your, to Matthew 6, I want to make one more announcement. That is that uh, the Alaska Bible College, as we've talked about, is going to be beginning classes this fall in our campus and on our facility. And it's a great opportunity for us to share ministry with them. And I'm very excited about what they're going to be covering this fall. We're going to have two classes here on campus meeting on Thursday evening. Um, uh, It's going to be inductive Bible study and also Daniel Revelation. Now, inductive Bible study is one of the sort of foundational classes for all Bible students. I learned it all through my college years, and it became sort of the foundation for how I study the Scripture every week of my life. And so if you want to study the scripture well and get to know how to dig into your Bible, um, look, at, look into that class. That's going to be led by Nick Ringer, who's the president of Alaska Bible College. A very sharp, very uh, studied man and very gracious and warm-hearted um, man to boot. He's, uh, and he's going to be teaching on Thursdays at 6 o'clock, I believe, um, and for several hours each Thursday. And then also... Um, Kevin Newman is going to be teaching Daniel Revelation, which will connect Old Testament prophecy with Revelation. And if you've never studied the book of Revelation, it takes some time really to dig through the issues and see what all is there. And it's a very powerful book, and it's a powerful study on hope. And so I would also commend that class to you as well. It's something high school students, I believe, can take for double credit um, who are um, Bible students and, and wanting to sort of get their Bible class um, um, that will also count for college if they're going into um, Christian education for undergraduate um, studies. So check out all the details. All of that is on the information table. I want you, want you to be aware of what's coming. And that this is, this is sort of a burgeoning ministry that we need to be praying and get praying for and getting behind because it's a way that we can replicate ourselves in the invisible advancement of the kingdom of God where disciples are being made and uh, students will, I think, further be equipped to serve in the ministry of local churches, specifically even our church. So there's a lot that could be spawning and happening, and we need to be prayerful and mindful of what's coming up. And so involve yourself in this ministry. All right, now let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer that begins in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, I don't know about you, but I need passages like these to help me pray. If I could have asked Jesus one thing, like the disciples were with Jesus and able to ask Jesus all kinds of questions, if I could have asked my question, perhaps I would have asked, Lord, teach me how to pray. And that's what he's doing here in his sermon. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. If you've ever experienced spiritual dryness, you know that you want so desperately to come out of it. You know, you you try to pray long, you try to pray in a way that's meaningful, in a way that you believe God is going to answer your prayers, and yet you find yourself trying to just put one word 
together with another, one sentence together with another, and you feel like there's a sort of a ceiling over top of you that you can't break through. Sometimes tragedies, like I just mentioned, draw us closer to God. Tragedies where we've lost loved ones, they they draw us to him and we can sort of pray our hearts out. And other times when we think about tragic things, it closes us up and we we can't break through and we can't get in the presence of God or we don't think we can. Perhaps even the mundane of life is causing you to become more mundane in your prayer life. Well, for me, when I can't pray and I feel spiritually dry, two things are always involved. Two factors are at play. One is... My view of God has shrunk when I can't pray. My vision of God has become small and it's not biblical. I'm not thinking about God as God really is. I I don't think about God as someone, as verse 8 says, who knows what you need before you ask him. I kind of lose that. I don't think of God in that way. I pray and it becomes more about me. I shut my eyes and I begin to think about what's going on in my life. You ever have that experience? It's kind of your quiet time, and all of a sudden it becomes your me time instead of your time with God. And this passage is useful to me because it draws me out of myself. And two factors are at play. Number one, my God is shrunk. I I have a small God, so I have small prayers. And secondly, when I'm dry, I'm sort of requesting things that aren't biblical. My requests are all off track. I begin to ask for things that are temporal or less meaningful or things that aren't necessarily Godward. They're more inward. They become the empty phrases that Jesus condemned in verse 7, where he's saying, Don't pray like a pagan who's trying to drum up your own prayer life with empty phrases, one phrase after the other that's really meaningless and not powerful. Don't seek God like your magical genie in the sky. If you pray the right uh, recipe of prayers, then something's going to happen for you. No, think about God as glorious and great big and let your prayers flow from what you know to be true about him. That's what he's trying to get us to do when we pray. And what I love about the Lord's Prayer is this. Jesus is giving us phrases to capture what we should be thinking about when we pray. These are priorities that we need to pray. And I've called them mile markers, mile markers that we traverse. There's six mile markers that we sort of pass by on the journey to praying the Lord's Prayer. We traverse six of them. We get the right view of God, and then we follow this pattern Not by reciting these words so much as following these priorities when we pray. And as we do, all of a sudden we'll find that we we have some traction. And we can pray along these lines and we have a place to go. And we're praying in accordance with God's will in a meaningful way. You know, I think that every one of you want a powerful prayer life. Don't you? You want to pray like Jesus did. You want to carve more time into your day so that you can pray. You want to sense God's heartbeat when you pray. And God has transformed us to want this in our lives. In Luke chapter 11, you might turn over there, this is where Jesus also taught on the Lord's Prayer. He 
he gave specific instruction to a disciple who asked him, how do you pray? Teach me to pray. The disciples saw Jesus praying in a certain place, Luke chapter 11, verse 1. They were probably kind of looking, you know, through the doorway, watching him pray, or they knew of his prayer life, and he kind of came out of his prayer time, and a disciple came up to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Show me how to do that. It's kind of interesting. The disciple didn't say, teach me how to be a miracle worker. Teach me to turn water into wine. I mean, teach me to raise the dead. Teach me to teach better. Can you show me how to connect the Old Testament to modern times like you do? No. Teach me to pray. And I think that the disciple did that because he understood that Jesus' power and his ministry came from his prayer life. He had a communion with his heavenly father. He said, teach us to pray. Just like John, John the Baptist taught his disciples. We know John's ministry was powerful. And we know John's prayer life was powerful. So teach us how to do this. What's interesting is he says, verse 2, Jesus said, when you pray, say these phrases. You know, it kind of struck me. Why didn't Jesus say, well, look at the Old Testament and go to the Psalms of David. You know, all of those inspired prayers or the inspired prayer of Moses or Isaiah. Look at those prayers and pray like they did. Or, or watch me pray. I'm going to pray in front of you and pray with me and learn to pray like I prayed. No, he says instead, pray these words. Say these things. What does he mean by that? Well, what Jesus is doing is he's giving you a pattern to follow when you pray. And in essence, when you follow this pattern, when you traverse these mile markers in prayer, you know what you'll be doing all of a sudden? You'll all of a sudden find yourself praying just like David did, just like Moses did, just like the prophets did, and just like Jesus did. And we'll look at that later on. We'll look at one of Jesus' prayers, and we'll see that the way he prayed and the way that he lived out this pattern of prayer was very natural, very normal. It was very um, dynamic. It wasn't just reciting these words. It was a dynamic prayer life, but it was It was springboarding out of these phrases. And these phrases are a gift to us. They help us. They guide us. And they keep us on track when our our minds want to go off in all directions. It's like the old uh, cowboy that jumped on his horse and went off in all directions, right? I mean, we don't want to do that when we pray. We want to stay on course. And this prayer is a gift to us to help us pray. To help us follow God's lead and stay in prayer. He says, pray like this. Pray these priorities. Let's look at the first mile marker again. We looked at this last time and I just touched on it, but I want to hit it again because it leads into the prayer. And I'm going to just say up front, all of these phrases boil down to being petitions and all of these petitions or requests hang together. One flows in to the other. And the first petition, which is the first mile marker, is our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now again, like I said last week, our Father points to intimacy and God being transcendent. God is your Father. He's our Father. He's intimate with you and He knows your needs and He knows this body. And just as we prayed for the Smithwick family and we prayed for the Davis family, we prayed 
as a body going to our Father. We prayed collectively. You prayed secretly in your heart. You prayed sincerely in your heart. But you know what? We prayed corporately as a body. And that's why Jesus says that we pray the words, Our Father. He's ours together. And when you pray, it's, it's in the sense of being a body. Even when you pray privately and nobody hears your prayers, you're still part of the body of Christ. You're still the hand or the foot or the eye or the ear. And, and you're praying to build up the body. And as we prayed for the Davises and the Smithwicks, what we're doing is we're praying corporately to build them up. Seeking our Father together. And that's the beauty of this word. It speaks to God personally being your father. I mean, the liberal theologians and scholars will say, well, look, you know, the idea of God being our father is is the universal fatherhood of God. He's the creator of all mankind and the universal brotherhood of man. You know, everybody's under God being creator. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I mean, yeah, we're all his offspring as um, people who are created by God. In that sense, he is everybody's father. But in a very specific sense, he is your heavenly father who knows you. Remember Mary in the garden, we talked about this last time, when Jesus rose from the dead and was talking to her and comforting her. He said these words. He said, go and tell them, tell the disciples, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. That's John 20, verse 17. The same relationship that Jesus had and has with his father is something that he has given, he has given to his disciples. You have the same thing. You're, you're in the same sort of communion that the Trinity has. You're, you have the same fellowship that the Son has with the Father. And it's, it's mind-boggling, but we need to enjoy that and understand that. God cares deeply about you, and he wants you to commune and fellowship with him. When Jesus says the, said the words, our Father, he would have said these words in Aramaic, which means that he would have said, when you pray, you need to seek God and say, Abba, our Abba. And the word Abba is, is this intimate, endearing term for God, meaning that God is our Papa. He's the one who we come into prayer with, and we're, we're seeking his embrace as our heavenly Father. He's the one who disciplines us. Hebrews 12 says he cares about us so much that he brings discipline to us and wants to correct us and bring us into um, sort of right relationship with him as we walk in our Christian lives. That's who he is. Paul mentioned this as well in Romans 8 and Galatians. He talks about how, how we are to approach God as our Abba. Our spirit bears witness with that. We know he's our father. You know, one of my heroes now that I'm, I read every week is Kent Hughes, and he talks about a friend of his, he's a pastor in Illinois, but he talks about a friend of his who had just adopted a child from overseas, you hear more of this, where people adopt children from orphanages, and he said one of his good friends had a five-year-old son that he had newly adopted and was riding next to him in a car, and suddenly the son placed his hand on his new father's leg and said with great thought, Father, Son. It was a wonderful day for that father, but even more significant for that little boy. You know, have you had that experience as 
as a child of God where you say, you know what, God, you are all of these things. You are magnificent and glorious, but you're my father and I'm your child. You've got to have that as a baseline for your prayer life. Otherwise, why pray? Why do it at all? We know God intimately. That's why. But we also remember that God is transcendent at the same time. He's holy. But God's holiness never, it never undercuts our intimacy that we have with our Father. I was thinking of my kids um, in this context. And one thing that we like to do sort of as a, you know, a family time, it's, it's kind of very full contact. And it sometimes... Um, does me wrong in, you know, my joints and bones. But my kids like to dive bomb on me when I get on our trampoline in our backyard. It gets pretty full contact, especially, you know, it's like miniature wrestling with my twins. That They just come off the top rope and sort of dive bomb on me. It's got to be, you know, hilarious reality TV for our neighbors who all sort of can watch over the fence and, and see what's going on. I have no idea, you know, what they see. But, wow, you know, somehow we all survive and my kids all think that I'm going to catch them every time. I mean, they even jump off the trampoline out of a spring into my arms, and I haven't dropped one yet. But, um, you know, I, I don't plan to drop them, but they're kind of presuming upon my athleticism, and um, it gets kind of sketchy. But with our Heavenly Father, we can always jump into His embrace, always, with full confidence knowing that He will catch us that he's there for us. He undergirds us with his everlasting arms. And that knowledge draws us to pray. That's why we pray. But we also pray knowing that he's not just some old man in the sky or intimate buddy. He's also transcendent. He's outside of time and space. He's got heaven's resources at his disposal to bless us with. He is the the God of James 1 who is the father of lights. In other words, he's the God who has named all of the stars and galaxies. And he rains down gifts from heaven to us because he's good. There's a real distinction between we being God's creatures and him being the creator. He's authoritative and sovereign over our lives. Now, as we look at verse 9 and the phrase, hallowed be your name, this is talking about God being transcendent and him being holy. And I always thought this phrase was just a way for us to start the prayer off, sort of jumpstart it until we get to asking about our needs. But really what struck me this week is that this prayer is made up of six petitions, six requests. And the first request is kind of unique because it's the request, hallowed be your name. It's a request. It's an imperative. And it's something where we're approaching God passionately and praying for God to show himself holy in our lives, in our church, and I think in our world. Holy be your name. Rain down, God, your holiness in my life. It's not demanding that God would be God or God would be holy. It's not just saying God is holy, but it's a request. It's like Moses who said to God, show me your glory, Exodus thirty-three eighteen. It's kind of interesting. Moses was passionate about God's glory about his holiness, and God could only show Moses his backside as he had hidden him in the cleft of the rock. But, but Moses was attracted to God's holiness. 
And that's important for us because as we think about God being our father, that's attractive. But we also need to think about God as transcendent and glorious. And we need to be equally drawn to that as well. You can't just be drawn to the embrace. We also have to be drawn to God who dwells in unapproachable light because God is holy. The angels, they declare it over and over again. God, you're holy, holy, holy. They cover their feet symbolically to say, I can't even stand on the ground that's near you. I I cover my face because I can't even look upon you. And somehow in our hearts, we long for a God like that, who's intimate with us, but also is transcendent and glorious. And we not only long for it, we want God to show himself holy to our world. That's what this prayer request is. Holy be your name. What does it mean that God's name would be shown as holy? Does it just mean that people will stop taking the Lord's name in vain? <laughs> it, it cuts cross grain with me when I hear people do that, by the way. I mean, when I turn a show on and it's sort of a teeny, teenage show or whatever, and teenagers or children are saying the Lord's name in vain, doesn't it just sort of make you wince in your spirit because you love the Lord and you, you don't want that to happen? But that's not really the point. Um, some you know, Jews in sort of Old Testament times used to reverence the names of God so much that they would, they would literally not write or speak the name of God. You ever hear of that? You know, and, and names like Adonai or Yahweh or Elohim, they, they just wouldn't say those words because they were trying to respect God's name superficially. They didn't really get the point of what Jesus is saying. And this may come as a surprise to you, but actually um, they created a name that we sometimes use for God that's really not in the Bible. It's not a real name for God. The Jews took the consonants out of Yahweh. The word Yahweh is is talking about God being self-existence. That was the name that God said he was to Moses in the burning bush. Tell them that I am sent you. That's Yahweh. Okay, that's, that's what that name constitutes. But they took the consonants out of Yahweh and they took the vowels out of Adonai, which is the name for God, which means Lord. And they took the consonants out of Yahweh, the vowels out of Adonai, and combined what was left, and that makes the name Jehovah. That's where Jehovah comes from. But praying God's name for his name to be hallowed is much deeper than all of this conversation. It really is. Uh, to, To think about God's name is really to think about all of who God is. That's what that means when you talk about speaking God's name or praying in God's name. You're praying in terms of God's character and his sovereignty and all of who he is. All of what every name means about God is what makes up God's name, his character. Adonai, God is Lord part of who he is. God is Yahweh. He is self-existent. He never had a beginning or an end. He was, he is, he is to come. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He's Elohim. He's the God of strength. So when you, when you talk about God's name being hallowed, you're thinking about all of those representations and saying, holy be all of who you are. That's what it means. And he's praying it, or we should be praying this as a petition. May your holiness rain down in our lives. May your name and fame be on display in our land. You know, many people will sort of 
flippantly use God's name even in spiritual context. They'll, they'll think of um, the word Jesus and they'll say, you know, just by speaking the name Jesus, there's something magical that's going to take place. Well, that, that's not true. It is true that when you say, look, I'm a follower of Jesus, that something is happening. Because to say you follow Jesus means I follow Jesus and Jesus says he's the only true God. And so what this means is I only follow Jesus. I'm becoming, you know, a, a, a separationist in this moment. So when you say to other people that believe other things, I follow Jesus, that is a powerful moment. It's saying something very powerfully about your faith and you believing that there's only one way to heaven. But there's a lot of people who will believe that you walk into specific rooms or specific environments and certain areas are sort of demonized territorially. And so by speaking the word Jesus, you are magically dispelling the demons. And I don't think that's the point of hallowing Jesus' name or God's name at all. I don't. Uh, A lot of people will look at John 14, 13 and 14, where Jesus was commissioning the apostles and the early disciples. And he was saying, "I, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the son may bring glory to the father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And so people will say, well, look, as long as I ask for something in Jesus name, then it's going to happen, right? Or at least in the apostolic times, that's how it was, you know. If, if, a, if an apostle wanted to continue Jesus' ministry of healing, he could do it in Jesus' name and it would happen automatically. Or, or cast a demon out and it would happen. But you know what? That wasn't always the case, was it? Sometimes the apostles tried to pray demons out and it didn't happen. So what is Jesus promising here? What he's promising is that if you are ministering in accordance with my character and specifically in accordance with my will, then it's going to happen. Then it's going to happen. That's why when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying, asking God to do things, but we're trusting that he's only going to do the specific things that we ask for if it's in accordance with his will, if he wants to do it. I mean, just by speaking Jesus' name at the end of our prayer doesn't guarantee that we're going to get it the way that we prayed for it, right? I mean, and that's what also is found in 1 John chapter 5, 14 and 15. The teaching is kind of, this teaching is kind of clarified there. He says, this is the confidence in 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have, that we have what we asked of him. In other words, if we're praying and our prayer gear meshes with what God's sovereign will is, then what we ask for is going to happen because we're praying in accordance with his will. And that's what it means, in essence, to pray in God's name. But here, here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is saying, you are praying that God's character or his name in all of who he is would be on display. Remember, I prayed earlier at the beginning of our service, Psalm 20. I read and prayed through that psalm, and that was because it's the verse, Some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David, in his prayer, was saying, look, some people, they trust horses, they they trust chariots, they trust all the war machinery to get them out of their jams, (laughs) to carry them through in battle. 
But instead, I'm trusting in the character of God as I do battle for God. That's what he's saying, the name of God. Now you might ask, okay, what does this look like in detail? What does it mean for God's holy name to be on display in my life or in the culture? I was thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, is it when someone is baptized? Is it when someone is, um, you know, sort of humbled in life? Is it when someone is worshiping? Is it when, is it when someone memorizes scripture? Is it when, um, you know, sort of missionaries go out? Is it, when is God's holy name put on display? I think the answer is found in the prayer itself. This first petition Hallowed be your name is the banner petition for which all of the rest of the petitions follow. All the remaining five petitions flow out of this first petition. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then the next petition is your kingdom come. And this next petition, which is the next mile marker in the prayer, clarifies and begins to clarify what it looks like for God's holiness to be enlarged, to be put on display. This phrase, your kingdom come, begins to enlarge that first petition. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? What does it mean? Well, the word kingdom, basileia, it's kind of a an interesting term. It means kingdom, but it also means reign. When I, when I think of the word kingdom, you know, sort of in my modern vernacular and mindset, I think of things like castles and Camelot and knights and lances and, you know, shields and kings and pomp and circumstance and things like that, you know, the round table, etc. I, I, don't, I don't think biblically enough, I think, with the word kingdom as I should. Even Pilate was confused when he was confronting Christ in the trial before Jesus' death. And he looked at Jesus as his peasant carpenter's son and said, What kind of king are you? John 18. And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is spiritual. And then it's also one day going to be a physical kingdom in front of us for a thousand years. In one sense, Jesus reigns already. This is mile marker number two, already. And then Jesus reigns not yet. Already and not yet. Now and not yet. Right now and then one day in the future. That's Jesus' reign. That's how we need to be thinking about the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, for instance, he said, Matthew 3, 2, Repent because the kingdom is near. He's saying, I'm here. The kingdom of God is initiated with my coming. In Mark 12, 34, he was talking to the scribe and he was explaining explaining to him that the law, for, for you to follow it from the heart, means that you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe responded and said, listen, that means that loving God is more important than doing a bunch of sacrifices. And Jesus responded to the scribes' faith saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What Jesus meant is that for you to enter the kingdom means that you're going to get the gospel. You're gonna, your heart's going to soften and your life is going to be transformed and you're going to be entering into the kingdom of God. And so bringing this back to the prayer of your kingdom come, That petition is to say, Lord, may your transforming work happen in the hearts of the people around me. Lord, bring your kingdom into the hearts of people around me. 
Romans chapter 14 says the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So every time someone gets saved, God's kingdom is advancing. Now let's tie that petition back up to petition number one. Hallowed be your name. How do we see God's holy name advanced gloriously through our world? People getting saved. So you say, Lord, I want your name. Holy be your name all around me. I want your holiness. How does it, how's that going to take place? Lord, let your kingdom come in the hearts of people around me. That's how those two things tie together. Jesus reigning in the hearts of believers. 1 Peter 3.15 says that all believers are to sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify Jesus as God in your heart. Believers do that. You know, every time someone gets saved, when you got saved, it added to the environment of God's holiness around us. I mean, when, when my older brother got saved, there was more holiness in my home. Because now, you know, my parents who had two kids, they weren't, you know, two believers with two unbelievers, right? Now it was two believers or three believers with one remaining unbeliever, moi. And then when I got saved, there, there was more believing going on and, and God's holy name was more glorified in our environment. And so when you pray God's kingdom to come, you're praying for people to be saved. Luke 16, 16, put it this way. Speaking of John the Baptist's ministry, since the time of John, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses or forces his way into it. We, we want it so that, God, let your kingdom come. Let people's eyes be open so they'll be forcing their way into it. They see Jesus and wild horses can't keep them from Jesus because of their hearts being transformed. That's what it means to pray for God's kingdom to come. It reminds me of the battle hymn of the Republic. I know there's more, you know, sort of, of, of a war theme that was going on during the Civil War when that was written. But the theology of that hymn says, His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. And every time the word is preached and people are saved, God's kingdom is advancing. The truth is marching on throughout the world. We shouldn't make this thing um, too complicated, should we? I mean, this is deep to think about the kingdom of God advancing spiritually in the hearts of people around us. It is. It's kind of a, a deep thought. It's a spiritual thought. But we shouldn't make it too difficult to play out. I had a friend in college who uh, used to wake me up. I was a freshman, and he used to wake me up at 5 a.m. every morning, freshman year, before the heavy classes were on. And he just wanted to pray and... This guy now is a pastor in Pennsylvania. He's been a pastor for 10 years or more. And um, he was on fire for the Lord back during my freshman year. And he would knock on my door and, hey, you know, let's, let's go pray. Okay, you know, and I would kind of follow him down the hallway. And we'd go into this prayer room in his dorm. And, and we would pray, and predominantly we would pray for his family members. And he would almost perfunctorily list his family members for them all to be saved. He'd pray for uncle such and such, aunt such and such, cousin, 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 uncle, uncle, cousin. You know, please save these people. Amen. You know, and okay, well, that was good to do. And we memorized some scripture together and, and prayed about some other things. But what struck me later on as I kind of went through my years in college was that I'd be in class and he'd be in my class with me, both studying ministry and 
the teacher would begin the time saying, hey, what can we pray about or offer praises to God for? And he would say, you know, uncle such and such just received the Lord. You know, and cousin such and such, you know, and, and then my junior year. Yeah, this other cousin just came to Christ. And throughout the years, the years, by the time I graduated, I think that whole list was picked off and they were all in the kingdom. And that that's an example of God's holy name being advanced as this kingdom was coming in the hearts of this family, this extended family. It shouldn't be more complicated than that, and I don't think it really is. But we're also praying not just for God's kingdom to come in the hearts of believers, but we're also praying and should be praying for God to come and reconcile the world to himself. We should be praying like John did at the end of Revelation. He saw all of what's going to happen in the future, all of God's enemies being destroyed. And he saw the millennial kingdom that was going to be set up for a thousand years on our planet. And he said, even so, come Lord Jesus. Some people translate this, come quickly. Come quickly. Come now, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come And that's what John prayed for, and that's what we should pray for as well. I believe Jesus is going to split the eastern sky and land physically and literally on the Mount of Olives and is going to set up, per Revelation 20, verse 6, a literal thousand-year reign where he is king on this earth. And all of the believers will gather around him and, and worship him perfectly in his kingdom. And then we'll have kids and the kids will um, um, sort of, as Revelation 20 plays out, go bad and ultimately become the armies, armies gathered under Satan's dominion. And then ultimately um, God will have them pressing together against God's people and wipe them out in one fell swoop with his holy fire. But all of this is to display God's glory, and we should pray for it. We should pray for the end times. We want Jesus to return. We want our King to come and save us. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're not just praying for people's souls to be saved now. We're praying for our King to come and take us home. Now, what does all this look like? How do we pray the Lord's Prayer? I kind of want to bring this back practical as we... Um, sort of wrap up today. I was praying with my kids earlier this week and we were reciting the Lord's Prayer. You know, my daughter Riley loves to say, okay, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it this time. You know, she'll sort of roll through it and, you know, all right, I've done it three times. Now I'm going to do it the fourth time to get it, you know, right. And I'm bleary eyed, wanting to go to bed. Okay, you know, but I, we were reciting the Lord's Prayer and I just said, okay, let's stop. And now let me pray the Lord's Prayer for you. And I prayed for each one of my kids at least those older three, um, with these particular requests in mind. Lord, you are holy. Your name is hallowed. You are are great, big, and, and perfect, and wonderful. And Lord, I pray that your name would be holy in the hearts of my children. Lord, I want to pray for Riley. I want to pray for Logan. I want to pray for Emmy. God, Uh, Lord, make their lives holy. Draw them to yourself. Lord, let your kingdom come in their lives and let them share the gospel with other people so that your kingdom would advance in our family and in their friends. I mean, you you can just begin to pray long because you've got tracks to run on. You've got mile markers to traverse and you've got these priorities in your mind that can sort of spawn your prayer life. 
It's not just reciting the prayer that gets it done. It's springboarding out of each one of these requests. Now, I think the best way to learn how to pray is to watch someone doing it. And Jesus did that for us in John 17. In John 17. Turn over there to John 17 real quickly. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. In John 17, what we have here is we have Jesus modeling how to pray the Lord's Prayer in a dynamic way. He's not reciting the words that he told the disciples to pray. He's taking those prayer requests and giving them sort of real-time sort of explanation and, and fleshing out what that looks like in his heart and in his prayer life. He brings the Lord's Prayer sort of on display with with real-time requests that were burdens on his heart right then. And you see that throughout this prayer. And over the weeks, I might sort of reference John 17 as a way to see how the different requests come to life in his high priestly prayer. Some people like to call this the Lord's Prayer because this is actually Jesus' praying in front of us. It's what it looked like for Jesus to pray. It's called his high priestly prayer because Jesus is concluding his three-year ministry at this point and he's picking up his intercessory ministry and it begins in John 17. Jesus is your high priest and he prays for you like this. He prays on your behalf this prayer. But look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, what? Father, Just think of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What is preoccupying Jesus' mind as it goes into prayer? His Father and His Father's glory. Now He's asking on His behalf, saying, Glorify me as I go to the cross, but may all of this bring glory to your name. Just think about it. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what creates these kinds of words that we find in this prayer. Now look at verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I think this is Jesus' way of saying, your kingdom come. I came here and I fulfilled your kingdom work while I was here on earth, seeking the souls of men. Then look at verse 6. It kind of is put together um, both requests where he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept, they have kept your word. He's saying again, I've put your holy name on display as I have collected and gathered your people out of the world. Now look at how he finishes the prayer in verse 26. Again, putting these first two petitions together, he says, I have made known to them your name, all of your character being put on display, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus was all about focusing on God when he prayed. And he prayed these priorities. He wanted God's holy name to be on display and to be separate, separated in worship. But he also was concerned about God's kingdom advancing. Now you might say, listen, you know, 
if that's how we're supposed to pray, how do I incorporate my own personal needs in that? I mean, does God care about me if he's only concerned about his own name? Well, let me just just sort of share quickly how that works. When God points us to himself and wants us to pray about his holy name and his kingdom advancing, that is one of the most joyous things a Christian can do. Because when we focus off of ourselves and on to Jesus Christ and on to him, that is a blessing back to us. There's a reason Jesus said, I am the living water. He's saying, look, come drink from me. Focus on me because I am the source of your greatest needs and satisfaction. Matthew 6, we're going to study it later. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So we seek him, his kingdom, and then we receive blessing by doing that. You know, when we understand praying and worshiping in this way, hymns that are dated and old and written in the 1800s all of a sudden pop off the pages of hymn books at us. I was thinking of the hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. This is all about God. It's, it's just attributes of God. Why would this be a blessing to us to sing something like this? It's because we understand that as we focus on God, God blesses us back in our hearts with faith. Immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. I mean, when you understand what it means to praise God's name, it fills our hearts with joy. Last verse, great father of glory, pure father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All laud we would render, O help us to see. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. All right, how do we make this practical? A few points. Number one, leave some extra time when you pray. To pray longer means that you're willing to schedule some more time in your prayer life. And when you study the Lord's Prayer and these priorities and these requests, and you understand that you're not just going there to recite these things, but you're, you're using these as prayer prompts, you'll find that you need more time to pray. So figure out a reasonable routine and allow for that. Secondly, even when your time is short, pray deliberately. Pray with an open Bible and an open prayer journal. You should be taking the Word of God that is before you and using that to connect with your life circumstances. I mean, how do we pray for the Davises? How do we pray for the Smithwicks? You know, how do you... How do you make sense of those circumstances where you're going, man, you know, we're, we're still hoping that, um, you know, Rob Smithwick's body will be recovered. How do we pray about that? Well, we might not have full resolution for how we should pray about that, but we do know Jesus's pattern for prayer. So start with the Lord's Prayer and let the Lord's Prayer prompt our prayers for how we pray about those circumstances. The Lord's Prayer informs the way that we can pray about very complicated things. And even when time is short, the quality of our prayer matters more than the quantity of our prayers. All right, number three. Be careful not to complicate our prayers. They don't need to be pretentious. They don't need to be things that um, we're, we're using lofty language in. We, you know, Depth and simplicity go hand in hand. And the Lord's petitions are made simple for a reason. Number four, 
We should recite, we should sing, and we should memorize the Lord's Prayer so we can use it. And I said this already, pray with an open Bible and an open journal. Mesh your requests with your petitions from the Lord's Prayer. Let's stand as we close um, this morning. just want to encourage you that if you need the Lord and you need to know God as your intimate Father, um, we'll have counselors up front um, to meet your needs and to pray with you. We also have an information table for you to find out a way for you to be plugged into our adult Sunday school classes or home groups. And, and also, if you are curious or interested in connecting with Alaska Bible College, we have application forms and ways for you to connect with that 